This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. It's Monday. It's the 17th of January. I'm Tabitha McIntosh in the breakfast slot, and today we're talking revolution, riots, protests, and rebellions. From walkouts over food to school children forcing constitutional change, hey, teachers, leave them kids alone. Sing along with the music. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning to Sebastian and Sarah, longtime friends of the show who just joined us. Uh, today, because you both missed it, I'll just repeat, we're talking revolution, riots, protests and rebellions. I've got some stories from teachers on EduTwitter about protests they went on where they were teenagers. Some of them silly, some of them very moving. Uh, we've got everything from constitutional change in Chile caused by students marching in the street, termed penguins because of how they were dressed to students marching in the streets in London, causing radical change to corporal punishment in schools. Um, so I'll start with some of our Twitter stories. Let's start with Laura. Um, Laura says, when I was in S1 at John Paul Primary in 1994, a group of girls from my year went on strike so that they could wear trousers. There was lots of shouting on the football pitches during French. I moved schools long after, not long after, not linked to that, but I remember that well. Um, as we'll see again and again from oral histories, the sight of students protesting, the sound of school children protesting, being in one of those protests themselves, it's absolutely electrifying experience in every one of the oral histories I've been able to pull for this experience. And, and it provokes absolute outrage from the authorities. My own school protest experience, very limited. I was at a fancy girls grammar school in Buckinghamshire um, and I went on protest over the weekend, it was the eighties, um, asked me to chant. If you say Maggie, Maggie, Maggie to me, I will just in a Pavlovian way say out, out, out. I went on so many marches. But uh, what we did was we all became vegetarian overnight some point in the mid 80s some kind of something was in the water and every young person in britain became vegetarian and so i helped lead a we refuse to dissect movement um in biology probably in year 10 year 11. so we got posters from a national organization distributed the badges that said i refuse to dissect and then my friend jenny used to do things like liberate the wood lice um that were there to show us how respiration worked out of the window. I'm not sure the woodlife benefited from that experience. But it worked to the extent that um, in lessons where people were doing dissection, we would all get laminated pictures of insects instead and, and look at those while we sat there proudly with our badges on. So the school displayed a mix of being nice to us and adapting, but also very much patronising us. And as we'll see, that's that's a long-term fixture. Adults don't really know what to do when students realise they can disobey en masse. Um, this story from C. Keeling is lovely. Um, we went on strike up in the Midlands as part of the 1970s uh, student walkouts and student strikes. I have a local newspaper cutting stuck in an old 1975 diary, took it in to show some students a while back. And I think our main gripe 
was, and I'm going to cut the swearing, a lot of you have done swearing, uh, rubbish school dinners. As I recall, the newspaper article says we were chanting, we want good food at the school gates. That's sort of the opposite of the Jamie Oliver Turkey Twizzlers experience, right? Where the children were essentially chanting, we want bad food, and their parents were shoving it in through the school fences. Um, moving one from well-loved stories, very brave thing to have done. Lots of swearing in this that I'll cut out. My proudest achievement, arranging a carol service protest. I heard my school carol service would be at the openly homophobic local church, Jesmond Parish Church, where the vicar said something to the effect of homosexuality is the 20th century disease and AIDS is the cure. So I arranged for a whole box of red AIDS ribbons to be delivered to me and I handed them out to any kids or staff who wanted one before the service because screw homophobia and screw hatred of HIV positive people. The whole church was full of girls in brown uniforms and red ribbons, including some of the students doing the scripture readings and some of the teachers too. When the collection plate went round, we handed the ribbons in instead. The priest was really angry. I was only 15 and petrified that I would be expelled for screw homophobia. In the end, I didn't get in trouble. The school never had the, held the carol service at that church again. And that was more than half my life ago, but I'm still damn proud of fierce little rebel me. God loves queer people and I will never stop insisting on that fact. Importantly, my parents stood right by me. I remember staying up the night before sick with worry that I would be expelled once they saw the protest. My mum let me know she loved me unconditionally, would fight for me and couldn't be prouder. I think student protest is great. Everyone should learn to develop their consciences and to know when to stand up and say, this is not okay and I will not tolerate it. Very moving story. So we are going to be moving around space and time over the course of the show. And we're gonna start in 1911 with the children's strikes for all my English teacher colleagues out there. That's a great thing to tie to um, an inspector calls, really, you know, except it might encourage the children to ferment rebellion. So be careful how you do it. But before we do that, it's crucial to remember that not all protests have come from working class children, that they don't all come from riots from below. And in fact, from the 18th century onwards, there was a series of full-scale rebellions at the country's most prestigious public schools. Students have a habit of being revolting, whether they're the most privileged or whether they're the least. Um, some examples. At Winchester in 1710, scholars mutinied over their beer rations. Just before the turn of that century in the 1690s, students at Manchester Grammar School were supplied by local people with firearms and food as they embarked on a violent two-week standoff with their teachers. The disagreement began over the length of the Christmas holidays. <laughs> in 1797, pupils at rugby school took staff prisoner at sword point and a local militia had to be raised to end the insurrection. And then coming forward two decades in 1818, during a great rebellion again at Winchester, the school's overall head was held hostage by boys armed with axes. Exciting. In 1851, a mutiny was timed at Marlborough College to coincide with Guy Fawkes' night and actually began with an explosion from a barrel of gunpowder. And over that same period, Eton and Winchester both suffered six rebellions each with five at rugby school. Lots and lots of very violent history of students revolting. Um, as with the Midlands one that C. Keeling mentioned, a lot of these ones were about food and provisions but also about, um, about 
corporal punishment, which continues to be a theme throughout the 19th and 20th century. A message coming in, my protest, sixth form 1983, got me nearly expelled. When the Lord Mayor visited the school as a Tory councillor, I wrote with spray paint on the sixth form block. Well, it was old Christmas snow. Maggie, 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 out, out, out. Yeah, like I said, Pavlovian response. I hear the word Maggie, I say the word out. Uh, that's very impressive. So that was a solo protest. There, there wasn't any group action there. Much more dangerous to do it on your own, as we will see people talking about strength in numbers. The moment where students realise that no one can actually stop them, that is the moment where these things catalyse into something much bigger. Um, there's a lovely Harvard history of student activism that I was consulting this morning, and it has some broad commentary that I'll be asking us to think about over the course of today's show, maybe come back to. And one of the things is how can a march become a movement? And what they say here, um, and they're talking to a lot of academics, is the most common outcome is that activism doesn't work. So um, this one was written in the aftermath of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas sh school shooting, and then all the, the amazing student protests that were catalyzed from the, the graduating class. Remember, national attention, international attention plays given to a lot of those speeches, to the activism. And of course, nothing has changed. There's no change in the gun laws in the United States. Um, those, those young people have all gone on to go to university. Um, and, and yeah, everything remains the same. So the, that is, as they say, the most common outcome. Um, because countless forces keep youth uprisings permanently fragile, from distrust to dismissal, from adults to co-option from outside forces, um, I'm guessing that the person there who'd sprayed Maggie, Maggie, Maggie out, 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 like me, every single march they would have gone to had posters supplied by the Socialist Worker Party. There were lots of adults around us who wanted to give us language and accessories with which to have these protests. Um, all of my I refuse that I set badges came from a national campaign. Um, and the leaflets, which the bravest thing I ever did was go distribute them in the local butchers while shouting, meat is murder, and running away, which I can't quite believe I did now. Um, to attrition by graduation, kids grow up and the, the force disappears, uh, or simply other obligations of students. And that's especially for low-income students and youth of colour, it's much harder to get recognised as fighting for positive change as opposed to posing a threat. We'll see that in the 1911 school protest that we're about to get to. But just before that, a reminder, I'm really not going to be looking at university students today, but the history of universities and the history of student bodies there is very much the history of, of political agitation and reform and violent interactions with local people um, from the establishment of universities. So just, just a taster for if we were doing universities. From uh, students have been activists since they've been students. From 1229 to 1231, the entire student body at the Sorbonne went on strike until Pope Gregory IX declared students were exempt from the city's jurisdiction. I like that one. Um, this one's particularly lovely. When the University of Vienna was founded in 1365, the Duke of Austria declared that if a non-student dismembered a student, authorities were to sever the same body part from the non-student, which gives you a taste of the interaction of town and gown there. Um, younger students, it says, and I think this is an excellent point, have a much better chance to build a movement when high school activism, school activism takes place, focused on the outside community, not the school itself. Because 
adults, the press, dismiss teenagers, dismiss children. Um, college students are often considered adults, but teenagers are often dismissed as acting out when they challenge adult authority within the administration. But the sight of children addressing national issues has been used to galvanise enormous change. So when students are working in the service of larger national campaigns or international campaigns, they often become the most powerful visual emblematic tool for the importance of those campaigns. Um, the one the Harvard example gives is what followed uh, the, a riot in 1917 in which a white mob killed 38 and injured hundreds more African-Americans in St. Louis. Um, and in response, hundreds of black children dressed in white marched hand in hand, leading 10,000 African-Americans through Manhattan in the silent parade, which aimed to make President Woodrow Wilson aware of the lawless treatment of black Americans nationwide. So people like to use the image of protesting children, especially if they're quiet, especially if they're a powerful silent symbol, um, think Ruby Bridges walking into the school with the crowd baying around her. But don't deal as well with students rioting and rebelling all of their own accord. So, as I said, let's go to the 1911 children's strikes, which you do see discussed more now than you used to, but still is an under-discussed phenomenon. There's a reason why we don't talk about children's strikes. I think that we're collectively terrified that children might just stop behaving and instead go out and start throwing rocks at us. Let's see what happened when they did. So in September 1911, thousands of children across wide areas of England, Scotland and Wales became embroiled in a series of strikes. Obviously there are national strikes at the time. Um, across industries, that's why I said for our inspector calls, we know that Mr Burling, when he's saying that, oh, order will happen and these people are just marching for no reason, it's an enormous wave of striking and, and rioting and, and violent picketing. Um, and so children joined in too. Over the next, um, it started in September 5th in 1911 in a, a school in Wales. And during the next three weeks, school strikes spread in a wave across the country, the entire United Kingdom, affecting at least 62 towns, um, including as far as Montrose up in the north and as far south in Portsmouth. Um, reasons for striking, and that's when we look at some of the news articles, there's a lot of inchoate reasons for striking, lots of different reasons, but they come down to a few things over and over again. A desire to abolish the cane, a request for less schoolwork, more holidays, and payment for school monitors. So school strike waves are, are rare events, as we'll see one happened in 1889 as well. Um, I'm just going to read you from the Hull Daily News of the 13th September 1911. Hull escapes little in the way of trouble, and so it came to pass yesterday that hundreds of schoolboys came out on a strike. Hull has thus been involved in practically every phase of unrest which has troubled the country during the last few months. For weeks there has been a feeling of anxiety as to what might happen next. First the sailors and dockers, then the millers, cement workers, timber workers, railwaymen, newsboys, factory girls, and now the schoolboys. The strike started at St Mary Roman Catholic School when 12 of the older boys led the younger boys out of the playground during the morning break. Once it was known they were on strike, the news spread quickly around the school and by the time the afternoon lessons should have started, the strike news had reached several other schools in the east end of Hull. Soon there were crowds of boys standing outside their respective school gates, howling and shouting, come out and black legs at the pupils. 
who were returning to their classrooms. <laughs> Lively scenes were witnessed outside St. Charles Roman Catholic School in Prim Street about half past one. Some of the older boys held meetings and the manner in which they aped the leaders in the recent strikes was significant. There is too much work, said one lad, and immediately there was a shout of approval. And too much cane, said another, whereat there was a louder shout. Hats were waved and then a policeman came on the scene and some of the younger boys wisely ran into school, but not so the older boys. They ran off in various directions. The boys then decided to visit other schools in the area and soon their procession grew longer and more boisterous as strikers from the other schools joined it. By the time they reached Holderness Road, which is the main road that runs through the East Hull area, hundreds of school children were carrying banners and milk bottles. One banner said, we're on strike, who will join us? As the day went on, more reports of violence were reported to the police. The lads were on strike and they wanted all the support possible from other schoolboys. A crowd of lads made themselves very objectionable outside St Mark's School. The vicar, Reverend Butler Chomley, whose house is near the school, tried to calm the excitement of the boys, but stones were thrown and he was hit on the forehead. An endeavour was made to raid the school, but it did not meet with success. A large number of parents had gathered and the boys made a hasty retreat. Before going, however, they let it be known that they demanded the abolition of the cane. At some of the schools, windows were broken. The lads visited more schools, Buckingham Street, Escort Street, Craven Street, Mersey Street, and soon they were joined by children from Lincoln Street and Courtney Street. Outside the Charterhouse School, a policeman mounted on his bicycle made several charges at the boys before they ran away. Thousands of people lined the main road to watch the progress of the strikers. Tradesmen were out of all their doors, laughing at the unusual scenes, though many were making anxious inquiries as to the whereabouts of their errand boys. The procession of strikers made its way to Corporation Field, a large concreted area in the west end of Hull, where mass meetings of the dockers were usually held. After their meetings, the boys went off to the banks of the River Humber for a swim. That kind of scene and that kind of reporting was, as I said, repeated across the country in at least 62 places, at least 62 cities and towns have newspaper accounts of this happening. Um, they were contagious. There's, there's always, there's a running theme throughout them is this anxiety surrounding how these children have communicated with each other. And also very much a sense of how these local national strikes about specific conditions, specific teachers, caning, food provision, having to do too much work, I think we should all rebel about that, um, are tied to national movements. So an awful lot of the coverage will sort of dismiss the children as being um, merely, merely copying their parents. So by mocking the children, you can mock the larger labour struggle. Um, but also a very clear indication that, that young people, very young people, some of the strikers were as, as young as you know five and six, some of the children who left school had this fully articulated, um, often very socialist sounding strike agenda and strike language and, and could call each other and, and organise chapters and, and were following the protest movements of the 19th century and learning from them. Um, if we look at the 1889 precedent for that, that would be the school children's strikes, um, which was a wave of walkouts which began in London shortly after the workers' victories in the Great Dock Strike in London and the Glasgow Dockers Go Slow. So the same phenomenon, when you have national striking and national protests, young people and children get in on the act and take their concerns into the national framework of protests.
So in imitation of the East End dockers, um, many of whom would have been their parents, children in the east, east of London initiated the walkout. They made banners emblazoned with no cane, shorter hours, no home lessons, and other slogans. It's a, it's a no homework protest, people. I'm very impressed. No homework protests in 1889. Of course, we, we only have universal provision of education for working class children for what, a decade at this point? And already the children are beginning to down tools and insist that there be slightly less work involved in school, which, you know, given what we know about the curriculum of the 1890s seems fair enough. Um, historian Clive Bloom says that in Bethnal Green, the schoolboy ringleaders were seen to carry red flags and wear and wear scarlet liberty caps. So going back to your French Revolution, Phrygian caps there. Um, and 9, October 10th, the London correspondent of the Melbourne Argus um, had described it for us. The children attending a dozen board and other schools in London have left school. They demand that the school hours are shorter, that home lessons are abolished, and that there shall be more holidays. They are intimidating those who continue to attend school. So lots of violent picketing, just like in Hull, you know, 20 years later. Today, 500 children marched through, marched through the street in a procession with banners flying, some of them having been driven in by their parents or by neighbours. So those strikes too spread across the country. Um, the newspapers will cover them in breathless, terrified fashion. Those get reprinted. And it's newly, increasingly literate young people across the country will copy the actions. So there were references to school children walking out um, across London, Finsbury Park, Homerton, Woolwich, Lambeth, and then Hartlepool, Middlesbrough, um, all the way up Edinburgh, Dundee. So nationwide. In Rattray, the local paper says, uh, infected by the strike contagion at present passing over Scotland. Many of the boys at Rattray School refused to resume lessons on Tuesday forenoon and proceeded to Craigmill and subsequently somewhere else, but failed to induce the scholars at these places to join their ranks. The strikers caused considerable disturbance, but the movement was short-lived, most of them returning to school the same day, where they were duly rewarded for their pains. Uh, yeah, so you see in this newspaper a lot of doubt as to how genuine the intentions of the strikers are. They're not necessarily sympathetic to these children. A demand for fewer hours and less lessons is the nominal reason assigned for the escapade. But in fact, most of these scholars will confess that they really came out for a lark. <laughs> but then we can see that, it, so we have a, a double movement there. Number one, dismiss them. They're, they're just ridiculous. They're just out to have fun. Um, and number two, as we saw in the later one, oh, they've been infected by larger socialist organisations. This isn't them. This is just them doing what their, their parents want them to do or what some shadowy external organisation want them to do. We can see that recapitulated in the discussion surrounding Black Lives Matter protests, where many people are very anxious to shift any of the young people protesting into the category, oh, they're, they're, they're acting in the service of Marxists. They've, they've been brainwashed. George Soros has paid them to be there. Exactly that same language being used in 1911, 1889, just with a different cast of shadowy international baddies who are causing our children to rebel. But also that, um, to, to dismiss them as just young people rebelling. Because young people rebelling is actually very unnerving to the authorities. Educational News of October, November 1889, here's what they say. 
Schoolboy strikers are simply rebels. Obedience is the first rule of a school life. School strikes are therefore not merely acts of disobedience, but a reversal of the primary purpose of schools. They are on a par with a strike in the army or navy. They are manifestations of a serious deterioration in the moral fibre of the rising generation. They will prove dangerous centres of moral contamination. To rebel against order is to question the entire structure of the United Kingdom people. And the, the school is understood here as the institution representing all of national order. As goes the school, so goes the Navy, so goes the army, so goes the empire. It's all gonna collapse. Right, time for the news, and then we will come back and look at some strikes from the 60s and 70s. Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full, free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Forestgate Community School in London has cut the working week to four and a half days, after Simon Elliott, who leads the Academy Trust, read a series of alarming reports on professional stress and burnout for teachers. The initiative is proving so successful that the school is now consulting on whether to reduce the week further to four days. Mr Elliot said, If you look at the amount of work teachers do, they do more than similar professions, and the workload is very high. I wanted to try and alleviate that pressure at a structural level. In order to achieve this, a 50-minute lesson was added on to the remaining weekdays. Tom Leather, a PE teacher, said, Knowing we're allowed to leave at 12.10 on Friday means that morale is better. Happier teachers work harder and produce better days. In Scotland, Teacher absences due to COVID 
are at the highest level since the start of the school session. Union leaders said current shortages were creating enormous pressure. The surge has been driven largely by self-isolation requirements, although some parents have also decided to keep youngsters away. The Education Secretary, Shirley-Anne Somerville, told MSPs, Earlier on in the pandemic, we did, of course, put a call out via the General Teaching Council for retired teachers if they wanted to come back into the profession for some time. The uptake of that, I have to say, was exceptionally low. It is something that we are looking to do again. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week Steve has lost his voice. So I am going to take a look at visualizing in the classroom. Before I begin, this is not about which product is best and comparing brands and features. This is about what you need to consider to make the best choice for your school or department. Visualizing in the classroom, in my opinion, is getting something that would be difficult to see into a format that a whole class can see more easily. This may be a live moving image or a still image. Also, it may be projected onto a large screen or cast out to multiple devices. The whole idea is it makes something small more accessible. The list of devices that can do this is huge, but they fall, roughly, into three categories. Visualizers, document cams and webcams. What is the difference? In sport the definition of fitness is the ability to cope with the environment around you. When you are purchasing a device, this is what you need to consider. Don't just buy one because someone else uses it and says it's amazing. Their environment may be totally different to yours. The factors that are going to affect your purchase are cost, size, software, portability, features, and what you already have in terms of audio-visual equipment. Lighting is sometimes overlooked and depending on what you are capturing can make a huge difference. Starting with the most expensive option, the visualizer. Generally, classroom visualizers come with a large footprint meaning they take up a lot of desk space. They tend to have a high-quality downward-facing camera, lighting built-in top-down and even sometimes a backlit bed. They tend to allow control from the unit so there will be little or no need to move away from the device to operate. This may be useful if a lot of time is spent using the device or furniture obstructs movement. A lot of visualizers are also standalone, meaning they work independently of your computer. However, additional software can be installed to further augment the experience. Document cameras tend to be less expensive, have a smaller footprint and be more portable compared to visualizers. However, they usually have less features and need a computer to use them. Although they are plug and play, there is normally additional software available that will provide the ability to capture still and moving images, zoom in and out like a visualizer, but normally control is via the computer it is attached to. Generally, they do not feature built-in lighting, but tend to have a built-in microphone. The cheapest option, the webcam is plug and play and may have additional software. However, the previous devices are designed for projecting something desk-based to an audience. The webcam is designed to work in a different way, but can be more versatile, especially if you move rooms frequently. You need a computer to plug it into. Some come with flexible arms and a base you can plug it into, but like the document cam, they are restricted by the length of the USB cable. Now we have an idea of what the devices are capable of. The next question is, what do you already have? Do you have an interactive board? If so, imaging a pupil's book with a cheaper webcam and using pinch zoom and annotation may do the job. Or in a bright setting, an HD webcam may do the trick. In the past, the rule was the higher the price, the better quality of image. Today, that isn't necessarily so. My conclusion is before you spend out, do your research and consider the fitness of the device for your environment and your value for money. And please talk to your school technical support before you purchase anything. Sometimes devices are not compatible with school networks. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods' screen reader, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hi everybody, you are back with me, Tabitha McIntosh in the Breakfast Show and I've been talking about 
the largely UK history of student rebellion. Now, this is an enormous topic. The more I researched, the more I realised I couldn't possibly do it justice. So just before I return to the UK, what we've covered so far is 1911 um, school walkouts over corporal punishment and also food provision, but also homework and school days and the nature of what was being asked of working class students, um, asked of working class students during the day, but very much part of a national strike movement. Same thing back uh, 20 years before in 1889, where there were large industrial actions across the country and children inspired by that or in concert with that um, also went out on strike. Again, same issues, corporal punishment, length of the school day, nature of the school day, and also homework. So we've looked at how national movements and local discontent by children and young people are connected. And I asked, I sort of think at the beginning of the show about some core commentary on young people's social protests from um, a Harvard analysis, which said it's very, very difficult to translate protests, individual marches, into effective social movements. The sad truth is that most student protests, most student demonstrations collapse They're, for a variety of reasons. One of the main ones of which is they grow up and they leave, but also they're not necessarily taken seriously. So the most effective ones are the ones which act in concert with grown-ups. So we've had these riots against um, corporal punishment and treatment of children in incredibly high cruel discipline systems happening in 1889, happening in 1911, but they're happening again in the 1960s and 70s. So just like Harvard suggested, you don't get change from students working on their own until they can work in concert with adults or with a society which is more receptive to their messages. So what we have happening in the 60s is um, the foundation and their movement between 68 and 74 of a group called Schools Action United, which um, this is from a Jacobin article. Obviously, that's a, a leftist publication for interested in labor movements. Most of the time, if you search for any of these movements, you'll find you'll find adult left wing organizers fascinated by students walking out spontaneously. And that's what we've got here as well. This, quite crucially, not spontaneous. It takes place within international action and international campaigning. <coughs> so Schools Action United, they say, <clears throat> was the culmination of a broad and varied range of protests at home and abroad. One of these in March 1968 saw hundreds of pupils from Miles Platting Secondary Modern School in Manchester stage a school strike in response to the excessive use of the tours, a, prong a pronged leather strap. And soon after, students from the strike formed the Manchester Union of Secondary Students, which was joined shortly thereafter by the Swansea Union of Progressive Students, the Bristol Sixth Form Alliance and Cardiff Union of Secondary Schools. As in 1911, as in 1889, young people are taking their organising cues from the predominant organisational style going on. And these are very recognisably protest styles of the 1960s and international organising styles. Um, this, the, the biggest march this culminated in was May 17th, 1972, when 10,000 British children walked out of school to protest corporal punishment and force authorities to change the law. They had absented themselves from school in reply to a call from the Schools Action Union, a children-led movement um, that made significant gains in shifting the corporal punishment debate in Britain. 
Uh, Tricia Jaff, a founding member of, of SAU, had been in Paris during the period of civil unrest in May 68 and of May's friends there. So literally taking cues, learning, internationally organizing, communicating with other national protest groups, which again, to go back to that Harvard thing, is the hallmark of an effective student protest, it seems. If it can connect with existing protest movements, if it can get grown-ups on side, then it has a strong chance of being able to affect change. So 1911 strikes did not produce changes in corporal punishment. The 1889 strikes, likewise ineffective. But these ones in the 70s really did cause major societal shift, or potentially that shift was happening already and therefore people were more receptive to it. Uh, the conference um, on free schools campaign, which, which began in 69, gained a huge amount of publicity with extensive television coverage from World in Action. Um, also, there was a planned invasion by the National Front. So what's happening with schools organizing has major implications, is seen as having major implications and being part of national political struggle yet again. Now, how do you get your school staff on side? I would suggest somewhat cynically that, that the students had realized by this point that they had much more to gain by working with teachers than against teachers. So where in 1911 and 1889, teachers would come out and say, stop that striking and get stones and bread thrown at their heads. What we have instead is this list of demands. All right, ready? Uh, control of the students by, control of schools by students and staff. So, so we're using the language of autonomous collectives, but now the students and staff are understood to be on the same side. Freedom of speech and assembly, the outlawing of corporal punishment, the abolition of school uniforms, co-educational comprehensive schools, and this is, this is the crucial bit for getting your teachers on side, more pay for teachers. <laughs> I get the idea that the teachers may have had some hand in shaping the nature of student demands, but to be non-cynical about it, um, you have a radical shift there. So the, the teachers unions um, have obviously be, like, been created and established and are much more um, progressive and activist than they were in 1911. Uh, and they are taking the side in major issues of structural change to the British education system, uh, calls for more comprehensive system, calls for greater pay for teachers and teachers and students are understanding themselves as a united front against a sort of authoritarian traditionalist government. So it's not students against teachers anymore, it's students and teachers against the man, right? We'll see that happen when I talk about the um, 2003 Iraq war strikes, school strikes, which a lot of younger teachers may remember themselves. Um, but Daniel Whittle on Twitter um, called my attention to the Burston school strike. So I did say that um, national campaigning organisations are fascinated by, by children taking action. Uh, so I'm going to read the uh, TUC's version of this because they've written it beautifully well, very dramatically. The location, Burston School in rural Norfolk. Burston Village School was cold, damp and dark. The children of poor farm workers, pupils were hungry and lice infested. When they made it to class, their education was basic but often they didn't. Farmers frequently forced them to join their parents in fields. The heroes, teachers Kitty and Tom Higdon. Kitty and Tom arrived in Burston in January 1911, having been fired from their jobs in another Norfolk school for attempting to raise standards. They attempted the same in Burston. 
They lit a fire to dry the children's clothes, to heat water for baths, and to cook nourishing stews. They taught their pupils not only letters and numbers, but about the world beyond their harsh lives in Burston. For the first time, the children aspired to a better life, and their parents did too. Tom was urging them to unionise. So, this does begin in 1911 with the rest of the school strikes, but it is markedly different, much more like the movement of the 60s and early 70s. We've got teachers uh, organising students, as well as students protesting for teachers, as we'll see, and it's connected very specifically to wider labour movements. The villain, there's a villain, of course, the Reverend Charles Eland. The Reverend Eland had a big salary, a big rectory, and it seems a big ego. He felt the poor should know their place and he felt threatened by the Higdon's teachings on equality and justice. When he and other wealthy, wealthy locals were voted off the parish council and replaced by villagers, including Tom, the Rev took his revenge. As head of the school board, he fired Kitty for lighting a fire without asking and not curtsying to his wife. Shocking times. The National Union of Teachers represented Kitty in an inquiry, but it was no good. At the end of March 1914, the Higdons started packing. So we've started in 1911. The Higdons have, have you know, encouraged the parents of their children to unionise. They are talking about standards. They are providing good food, unlike the uh, schools where the children are throwing stones because the food is bad. And presumably they're not doing corporal punishment either. So what do the children do when the teachers are fired? On the 1st of April 1914, the Reverend and the new teacher entered the classroom and found it nearly empty. In capital letters, we are going on strike tomorrow, had been emblazoned on the blackboard the day before. Outside, 66 of the school's 72 children were marching down the street, led by 13-year-old strike leader Violet Potter playing the accordion. They waved placards declaring, we want our teachers back and justice. And when they marched past the rectory, they paused to boo. The feel-good factor, solidarity and celebrities. The villagers set up a temporary school on the village green and Kitty started teaching them again. Furious, the school board fined 18 parents for not sending their children to the state school, but families clubbed together to cover the fines. The story spread and the suffragist star Sylvia Pankhurst visited Burston, along with union legend and MP Tom Mann. In 1917, trade unions, Labour Party branches and even Leo Tolstoy helped fund a new school building, which strike leader Violet Potter, remember her with the accordion, uh, opened in front of a jubilant crowd. As the legacy, it is the longest strike in British history. So the Higdons ran the strike school for 25 years. Tom died in 1939 and Kitty, now 75, closed the school a few months later. Um, and their families has never been forgotten. Hopefully we'll see their story on the big screen soon, says the TUC, talking about a possible film about it. I love this story. So they created a strike school. They created a school themselves on the village green and everyone, including Leo Tolstoy, gave money for it. So there was, that is the way to trick your children into attending school. Make it completely rebellious. Like, yeah, we've built you an institution you can be in for eight hours a day. All the reasons the other children around the country are protesting, but you want to be here. Anyway, so that's a wonderful story. And um, very much a case where teachers and students acting together are successful, whereas students working on their own against teachers not so much. Right. Um, JMB, Twitter user, brought up the Liverpool school strike of 1985. Um, I'll put links up afterwards, some absolutely beautiful pictures of this. 
And uh, again, national, local and young people's concerns get folded together. And that is very much the case in this one. Um, this was protests against the introduction of the youth trainings scheme, the uh, YTS, and which, you know, mostly my recollection of is from the, the tragedy striking Damon in Brookside, which gave me strong feelings about the youth apprenticeship schemes. Um, but this is someone, Dave Sinclair, again, these are oral histories put together largely by socialist um, pro-strike organisations. So they have a certain tone, you just bear with me on this one. <laughs> okay, some odd messages there. Uh, anyway, so 1985, I was staff photographer for the militant newspaper, writes Dave Sinclair, and I was sent to Liverpool to photograph the school strike against Margaret Thatcher's Tory government's youth training scheme, YTS. The youth of Britain saw the scheme as a form of exploitation or slave labour, and all over Britain, school students were taking strike action. Yeah, and we were encouraged to by Brookside. I'm telling you, Phil Redmond shaped the 1980s teenage experience in, in deeply influential ways, from sausages in Grange Hill to youth training scheme. Still makes me bleed with horror from my eyes because of what happened to our Damon. I'm telling you, it was tragic. The atmosphere in Liverpool was particularly angry and anti-Thatcher. The miners' strike of 84 to 5 had just finished in defeat and was looking to be the large, largest strike of children. Parts of Liverpool had 80% youth employment. Students have been campaigning for weeks, and with the help of the Labour Party Young Socialists, they have been leafleting different schools to spread the word. So similar pattern that we've seen before, but again, as with the most of these school strikes, it's part of larger industrial action. It taps into organising systems that are going on by grown-ups. Um, young people take advantage of those existing systems in order to leverage successful action, successful communication. So they agreed to gather together on the 23rd of April 1985 and then marched through the town centre to rally at the pierhead. We were later told by the education authority that as many as 30,000 children took strike action, as many as 10,000 of them making it into town. Many students have made their own placards and banners. So we've got a lovely description from a 14-year-old, somebody was 14 at the time in 1985, which I was 14 in 1985, Buckinghamshire, we didn't do this. I was a 14-year-old schoolboy and I remember the day of the strike and some of the build-up to it with far more clarity than most of my time at school. With no social media or mobile phone, the details of the strike were distributed on very poorly printed black and white flyers that were passed around on the school buses and in the schoolyard. In fact, a couple of days before the strike, one lad in the year above me was suspended for being found in possession of several of these flyers, which served to heighten the tension around the strike. When, when teachers do not support it, it turns into a very different, much more exciting underground sort of thing. The day itself was a test of nerves. The school issued warnings of action being taken against anyone taking part in the strike. I remember leaving school at lunchtime and finding about 20 students who were intent on going on the demonstration. One lad came running from the direction of the train station, the quickest way to get to the centre of Liverpool, saying that there were police at the station stopping school students from getting on the Liverpool train. So we took the bus to Seacombe and then the ferry over to the pierhead. On the way down, we all laughed and joked, but I felt worried that we'd get into serious trouble as I'd never bunked off before, and this seemed even worse. We arrived to the, at the pierhead to find a few people milling round, so we headed up towards town to find the demonstration. We got up near the town and found it coming straight towards us. After only being one of 20 on the way over, the demonstration was far bigger and noisier than I could have hoped for. We hesitated at the side of the road and then joined in 
and headed back down to the pierhead. There were speeches back at the pierhead, but I can't remember a single one of them. That is my favorite line. I was just filled with the feeling that being on strike was far better than being in school. So, you know, there Nick Lawson reflecting on this in, in 2011 is talking about the actual joy of rebellion, quite aside from the justice of the rebellion or, you know, the, the very real, very awful conditions. Um, there's some, there's just some pure joy in walking out of school, in not listening to your head teacher, in rebelling. And then it's very scary until everyone does it. So collective action and support makes a huge difference. And we see that 20 years later in March 2003. Um, that dynamic plays out again in the student iteration of the global protests against the Iraq war. The March 2003 national anti-Iraq war protest which happened, I think, when many of um, you know my, my teacher friends on Twitter, many of the teachers in my department would have been at school at the time. So if you did take part in one of these walkouts or protests, do let me know. I'd love to hear more about it. So just a sample of events. And again, this is put together by um, a radical labor history organization, which has basically gone through and news clipped. Um, I'll just read you some random ones. Up to 200 pupils at Helena Romani's school and sixth form college in Dunmo, Essex, stage a peaceful protest outside the school gates. Um, pupils from Priory High School in Exeter who joined a demo in the city centre said they'd been given permission to take part. At least 100 students in St Boniface School in Plymouth faced being suspended after a protest in the city centre. Um, 500 kids walked out of lessons from Clisvale School in Devon and held a protest meeting outside that went on all day. 200 students at Farnborough Further Ed College are occupying the canteen. <coughs> Everyone walked out of Thomas Hardy School in Dorchester despite threats from the school board. Um, uh, just, just picking some random ones. Uh, pupils at Shenley Brookend School staged their own spontaneous protest after morning break. Instead of going back to lessons, pupils assembled in the street, as the school's commons area is, is named, where they remained for 10 minutes until the protest was broken up by teachers. Uh, Walthamstow, Walthamstow School for Girls and two sixth form colleges, over 400 school kids in Walthamstow walked out and they blocked traffic. Same thing happened in uh, Muswell Hill and Highgate. Um, police were called in to pen students at the Charles Edward Brooks School in Lambeth after they started shouting anti-war slogans. Uh, up to 300 people, so all over the place. There's also a lovely bit, because I trained in Brent, and I remember what Brent was like in the 80s, which was um, the word woke used to be the phrase politically correct, and the, the local authority that was most often accused of being politically correct on MAB was Brent as well as Islington. But um, in Brent, all the teachers' unions went out, um, and all the teachers from the school I trained at, Copeland, uh, went out. That school went very much downhill and has now been taken over by an arc. But I was very fond of seeing that in the 1980s, every teacher was out protesting in Wembley. Uh, There's a lovely interview with a 15-year-old from North London about the 12th of March school walkout. Um, so I'm just going to go through some of those answers. How did you first hear about it? By word of mouth, the schools are all close to each other and people know each other. It wasn't particularly done on the internet. So a little bit like the uh, Liverpool protest where it was distributed bits of paper on school buses. This one is very much word of mouth. They're not organizing online. Um, yeah. 
Why that day? I don't know, says the kid. I knew a week in advance and it was clear from the beginning that the teachers must not find out. We were told to spread it around among our mates. This was an international protest movement. So there was there were a series of collective days of action, one, one in February on the 18th, I think. I was in the States at the time. Um, but so as we as I said, the Brent teachers walked out, the national unions had had made it clear they were against the Iraq war. So there was support from teachers. But what these kids were actively organizing without teacher knowledge, which was part of their experience of doing it and why they found it so powerful. We went to school with our, our bags or anything. The walkout time was 9.30 for everybody. And this is when it all happened. We had a supply teacher who didn't know what was going on, poor supply teacher. We all just got up, the whole class. She tried blocking the door and saying, you will get in trouble. So we all marched out and everyone was there because it was the same time for everyone. Once we were outside the school, we got everyone together and marched up to the Parliament Hill School to pick up people there. And on the way, La Santa Union, they were already waiting for us. And then we all marched down to Kentish Town where we all got on the tube. I, just like in, um, in the 1911 strikes, in the 1889 strikes, in all of these strikes, the kids are going to other schools. And uh, re remember back the one from, uh, I think it was the 1911 one, where the children outside the schools are shouting, come out, black legs! <laughs> You're strike breaking by being in class. We have a similar sort of experience here. Um, again, I'm just stuck with that poor supply teacher having to cope with an entire class full of kids standing up and marching out in protest. What was the reaction from people on the streets as you marched to the tube? People seemed quite shocked, looking at their watches because we should have been in school. Um, yeah, people used the phrase bunking, didn't they, in the 80s and, and in the 70s. So that the terror, there is this terror frisson of breaking the rules in some fundamental way that then when there are sufficient students present, when the, the numbers grow, becomes liberating and, and falls away a bit. But um, what were you doing on the tube station? How did you feel? Great cheering, banging on the escalators, writing no war signs. It was amazing when we got on the tube. There was a bit of debate before we got on about our tickets, whether to bunk it or not. We were all standing around outside talking about it. And then this guy who's quite big and loud stood up on this box and shouted for everyone's attention. There's always a guy who stands on a box, right? Uh, he said, how should we get on the tube? Should we pay or not? Everyone shouted out what they thought. And it was clear that most people thought we shouldn't pay. So he said, that's what we are going to do. Democracy in action. Uh, we got to Embankment Tube and more people had come by them from more schools around London. It was amazing at Embankment Tube. They have a line of ticket barriers and we're all just standing there looking around thinking, crap, what should we do? And then we walked up to the barriers and said, should we just jump it? And we had about 600 people all jumping over the barriers at Embankment Station. It was an amazing sight. That's something we see come up repeatedly. When sufficient people, when sufficient children decide they don't need to follow the rules, um, they can break them en masse. And when enough of them are doing it, nothing can be done. This is the consent of the governed people. We rely on the consent of the governed. Don't annoy the students too much or, um, or we might have this happen to us. So we're at Parliament Square. Some of us started talking to some older people, about 16 years old, very old, and thought we should do a roadblock by Big Ben in front of Parliament. But then this was the bit where the police started getting heavy. So this was not an organised protest. And, and what we see here happening is what we were seeing happening in the less successful movements in 1911 or 1889, where there's no clear path of engagement or progress. 
or understanding and shared agreement about what's going to happen. A guy can stand on a box and organize things, but then they actually had zero plan for when they got there. Um, so then there's panic, the police are there, etc., etc., and uh, they didn't enjoy themselves at all at that point. I'm just scrolling down to look for, uh, there we go. How are you talking about it? When they finally left, it was an excited atmosphere that we've managed to do something quite spontaneous. It was fun as well because so many people had turned up. You could go around to people and ask what school they were from, and we were all the same age. Yeah, Sarah Barker saying, I'm not sure my kids would know the term blackleg. Maybe they would if Bristol were an old mining town. This is the important history we need to teach them, Sarah. It's great for inspector calls, like I said, although I do worry that, that it might turn into a democracy in action. Um, I'm going to, I, I have a lot of things here, but I'm going to skip to a progressive school riot um, because all this discussion of, you know, rebelling against the man, students and teachers against the authoritarian state. Love this one. Joe from Twitter mentioned it. It's a school, a deeply progressive school that ended up causing mass student uh, riots and terrible behavior. And it's a nice corrective to the idea that school strikers are always on the side of the good. So, uh, 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 yeah, just bear with me while I get to it. It's fabulous, I promise you. Okay. So, it's worth noting that not all UK student protests have been left-wing in nature. This is absolutely amazing. It's the William Tyndale affair. Um, Joe, again on Twitter, thank you so much for sending me information about this. I'm just going to read you some of the Wikipedia entry with some light commentary mixed in. The William Tyndale affair was a controversy in British education arising from the introduction in 1974 to 75 of radically progressive methods at the William Tyndale Junior School in Islington. Told you it's always Islington or Brent if it's the 70s and 80s. After parent protests and the publication in 1976 of a report commissioned by the Inner London Education Authority, the affair led to an increase in government authority over education in England and Wales and a reduction in the autonomy of local education authorities. It let's find out what happens when education is too progressive. Just to, is it possible to be too prog? Yes, it is. And let's find out how. So January 1974, a man called Terry Ellis is appointed headmaster of the William Tyndale Junior School in Islington. He and his deputy institute a radical child centered system, an integrated day under which the school day was divided into alternating open and closed one hour periods with pupils free to choose what they did in the open periods. They had great freedom and access to all parts of the school, even the staff room and laboratories. Ellis responded to parents' concerns that children were being allowed to roam the streets by saying, um, in a rhetorical move you will recognize from the internet, uh, what do you expect me to do? Make the school into a concentration camp to keep your children in? Uh, Always go to Hitler. It's a great rhetorical move. Never fails. Really makes your argument sound um, fantastic and not at all hyperbolic. Ellis and his colleagues went beyond the traditional progressive education of the period as recommended in the Plowden report um, because they saw that as really benefiting upper middle class children and they wanted to bring some radical change to poorer children. Um, so in Ellis's words, Tyndale instead geared its main educational effort towards the disadvantaged. So what, what happened there? 
A cloakroom was converted into a sanctuary for disturbed children with a special teacher for them. Um, and in order to provide all the children with an outlets for their skills, um, bands were organized, steel bands, which practice as much as eight hours a week. This is the great part. This is the part where it gets to riots. Severe disciplinary problems arose that the staff were unable to solve, including gambling away of lunch money, fire starting, and throwing full milk bottles into the infant's playground from the roof of the toilets. Oh dear. Not a great advert for radically democratic schooling. Oh, actually, much more effective when, when kids have things to rebel against, I imagine. Um, some recent protests, uh, and we've had some huge national attention paid to the Pimlico Academy protests in 2020 and 2021. Um, they got national attention because the 2020 uh, action that the students took was associated with the height of fever commentary about the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and, you know, I think I mentioned earlier all of the perception that that was an embrace of Marxism, that young people are being radicalized by sneaky Marxists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, especially because in an extremely emotive symbolic moment, the, the new school management had put up um, the union flag and the children took it down and burnt it and burning flags red rag to a daily mail daily telegraph sort of ball so late september 2020 children at pimlico academy um took down the union jack took it to churchill gardens a large housing estate nearby and set it on fire as i'm sure you will remember they were protesting against the uh several things the curriculum which they said uh was insufficiently diverse did not reflect the lives of the student body or the history of the student body in the nation, um, but also some specific policies about um, banning haircuts that, that would, what would it say, obstruct view in the classroom and colors of hijab that they felt were racialized and targeted policies. Um, and then this introduction of the union flag outside the school, they, they had taken against that, saw it as, um, as the imposition of a certain kind of traditionalist pro-empire type education. So, um, for weeks earlier, pupils at the school had started a petition in response to the Academy's strict new uniform policy, which stated that hairstyles that block the views of others would not be permitted. In response, the pupils accused the school's management of racism. Um, and we, the students, so there's a petition written by the students, gets almost 1,200 signatories from children and parents, and it says, we as students have the right to express ourselves however we choose and also have the right to have our natural hair, whether it be big hair, small hair, loads of facial hair or no facial hair. Um, and I mean, they were successful. That, that protest was successful. The uniform policy changed. But as with uh, 1911, as with 1889, as with the 1960s, as with the 1980s, their protest is very much covered and understood in the context of national crises, national movements and protests and discussions about decolonizing the curriculum, about racialized dress codes, um, about racism in schools, and about the Black Lives Matter movement, um, about flags and statues and all those things, which is probably why their movement was successful, because it had so much attention attracted to it, because, as we've been saying from the beginning, it tied into larger social movements, tapped into networks of organization and communication that spread that information. Um, as opposed to one that people don't necessarily remember, which was um, 
2019, St. Aloysius College students protesting against administration of Archway School. So dozens of St. Aloysius College students have been protesting outside the school this morning because they are fed up with the administration, lack of staff and strict new rules. We've got, you know, in, in a way quite similar to Pimlico, but obviously predating it, um, taking over schools, academization, new behaviour systems in new management and, you know, multi-academy trust often provokes this kind of um, clash of cultures between student and parent base and new school management that gets very much blown up by the press. The press loves these kinds of stories. Daily Mail loves to monster a school as we talk about all the time. So 100 kids shouting, we shall not be moved, were this morning threatened with exclusion if they did not stop the demonstration and get back to class. But parents are encouraging them to exercise their rights to protest. Protests started outside the school gates at 8.30 a.m. and students were still holding their ground four hours later. Right. So what are they talking about? And let's let's think here about the um, late 60s organising where they were campaigning for curriculum changes, but, but large structural organisation and funding systems of schools. They wanted comprehensive schools instead of secondary mods and grammars. And they were very much working in concert with teachers, understanding teachers as on the same side as them. That's what happened with the St. Aloysius Archway protest, because the list of demands says, we have had enough of the treatment of staff and students under the new management. It's humiliating to see staff being talked down at in front of students. It's demoralising. We have lost too many good teachers due to mistreatment, and there have been too many unreasonable decisions imposed. You have actually made us reach the point where we feel right to protest for the sake of our school and education. So... The us versus them dynamic very much became new school management versus united teachers and students and parents, which, you know, is is certainly one way of um, if we go back to the, the 1914 action and the longest strike in British history, that kind of coalition of, of interested parties and national attention um, worked extremely effectively. Right. I'm going to play the news again and then I'm going to cover briefly some international, um, major international legal changes and victories, as well as a deeply distressing couple of incidents um, covering international student protest. Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full, free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram 
or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Forestgate Community School in London has cut the working week to four and a half days after Simon Elliott, who leads the Academy Trust, read a series of alarming reports on professional stress and burnout for teachers. The initiative is proving so successful that the school is now consulting on whether to reduce the week further to four days. Mr Elliott said, If you look at the amount of work teachers do, they do more than similar professions, and the workload is very high. I wanted to try and alleviate that pressure at a structural level. In order to achieve this, a 50-minute lesson was added on to the remaining weekdays. Tom Leather, a PE teacher, said, Knowing we're allowed to leave at 12.10 on Friday means that morale is better. Happier teachers work harder and produce better days. In Scotland, teacher absences due to COVID are at the highest level since the start of the school session. Union leaders said current shortages were creating enormous pressure. The surge has been driven largely by self-isolation requirements, although some parents have also decided to keep youngsters away. The Education Secretary, Shirley-Anne Somerville, told MSPs, Earlier on in the pandemic, we did, of course, put a call out via the General Teaching Council for retired teachers if they wanted to come back into the profession for some time. The uptake of that, I have to say, was exceptionally low. It is something that we are looking to do again. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week Steve has lost his voice. So I am going to take a look at visualizing in the classroom. Before I begin, this is not about which product is best and comparing brands and features. This is about what you need to consider to make the best choice for your school or department. Visualizing in the classroom, in my opinion, is getting something that would be difficult to see into a format that a whole class can see more easily. This may be a live moving image or a still image. Also, it may be projected onto a large screen or cast out to multiple devices. The whole idea is it makes something small more accessible. The list of devices that can do this is huge, but they fall, roughly, into three categories. Visualizers, document cams and webcams. What is the difference? In sport the definition of fitness is the ability to cope with the environment around you. When you are purchasing a device, this is what you need to consider. Don't just buy one because someone else uses it and says it's amazing. Their environment may be totally different to yours. The factors that are going to affect your purchase are cost, size, software, portability, features, and what you already have in terms of audio-visual equipment. Lighting is sometimes overlooked and depending on what you are capturing can make a huge difference. Starting with the most expensive option, the visualizer. Generally, classroom visualizers come with a large footprint meaning they take up a lot of desk space. They tend to have a high-quality downward-facing camera, lighting built-in top-down and even sometimes a backlit bed. They tend to allow control from the unit so there will be little or no need to move away from the device to operate. 
This may be useful if a lot of time is spent using the device or furniture obstructs movement. A lot of visualizers are also standalone meaning they work independently of your computer however, additional software can be installed to further augment the experience. Document cameras tend to be less expensive, have a smaller footprint and be more portable compared to visualizers however, they usually have less features and need a computer to use them. Although they are plug and play there is normally additional software available that will provide the ability to capture still and moving images, zoom in and out like a visualizer but normally control is via the computer it is attached to. Generally, they do not feature built-in lighting but tend to have a built-in microphone. The cheapest option, the webcam is plug and play and may have additional software however, the previous devices are designed for projecting something desk-based to an audience. The webcam is designed to work in a different way but can be more versatile especially if you move rooms frequently. You need a computer to plug it into, some come with flexible arms and a base you can plug it into but like the document cam, they are restricted by the length of the USB cable. Now we have an idea of what the devices are capable of the next question is what do you already have? Do you have an interactive board? If so imaging a pupil's book with a cheaper webcam and using pinch zoom and annotation may do the job. Or in a bright setting an HD webcam may do the trick. In the past the rule was the higher the price the better quality of image. Today that isn't necessarily so. My conclusion is before you spend out, do your research and consider the fitness of the device for your environment and your value for money. And please talk to your school technical support before you purchase anything. Sometimes devices are not compatible with school networks. For a visual version of this episode check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods' screen reader and that was 2 Minute Tech. 2 Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. Today we've been talking about all things scattershot all over the place in uh, space and time, history of student protests. So just to recap some of the things we've touched on, um, I didn't go into detail, but I gave you some juicy details about the history of riots and rebellions in the great public schools of uh, England, (laughs) which happened throughout the 17th and 18th century and into the 19th, including one attempt um, to actually blow up the school that began with um, gunpowder being set off on Guy Fawkes Day. And then we've looked at um, huge student strike movements in 1889 and 1911, as well as enormous waves of student protests in the late 60s and early 70s, all of those connected to corporal punishment, um, as well as increasingly the nature of school organisation, how funding works, how teachers are paid, um, their school day, homework, all of those sorts of things. that did result in you know, a kind of nationwide shift in how we feel about corporal punishment in schools. Obviously it was therefore banned. Um, and I said that before I go, and I'll be finishing a little bit early today because my blood sugar is trying to kill me, people. I can barely talk. So thank you very much for listening to my sugary, sugary self get through this. I'm just gonna check my blood sugar and give you an update. It is all, it's down to 11.2 now. I should start being human shortly, which is sad times for you because you had to listen to me not being very human. Um, Carolina on Twitter wrote to say, Chilean high schoolers were responsible for the Chilean protests and uprising that led to the change of the constitution and consequently the government in Chile, which is pretty awesome if you ask me. And indeed, 2019, huge wave of protests led by young people, school children, as well as um, university students, which which led to a rewrite of the constitution. So 2020 BBC headline commemorating that, jubilation as Chile votes to rewrite the constitution. And uh, one of the adults says, if it were not for the brave young people who fought for us, no one would have gone out on the streets. I had wanted this to happen for a long time and it happened. And thanks to them, today we have won. So if we were looking at before, um, how does a street protest, how does a march, become an effective social movement, enact 
true social change instead of being contained like the 1911 ones and dissipating or like the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas um, anti-gun protests of a couple of years ago in the United States. Um, one of the ways is that young people in this instance are doing the rebelling, are taking the risks that the adults don't feel able to. And there's a tradition of that in the country. Um, when researching what uh, Carolina had told me about, I found out about the 2006 Penguins Revolution, um, which is absolutely glorious. So the 2006 student protests in Chile were known as the Penguins Revolution or the March of the Penguins because of the student school uniform. So your, your classic school uniform in Santiago and elsewhere is black and white. Right? So like a, a, a black body to the dress and, and white arms or the other way around. And so when the students took to the streets, they were affectionately and admiringly called the Penguin Revolution, March of the Penguins. There were a series of ongoing student voice protests carried out by high school students across Chile from late April to early June 2006 against the privatization of the education system implemented by Pinochet in the 70s. The protest peaked on May 30th when, brace yourselves, 790,000 students adhered to strikes and protests throughout the country, becoming the largest student demonstration of the past three decades and the first political crisis of the president's administration. Amazing. Right. So, yeah, in 2006, as in 2019, children, literal children, high school children, are forcing major social changes because they are willing to take risks that adults aren't. Now, I'm going to end on one that I asked my child, what do you know about student protests? Can you think of any notable ones? And my kid, who is a polymath and gets information from, I have no idea where, so no, you have to talk about the Central African Republic um, student protests. And it's profoundly upsetting. I'm going to give you um, a link to, to a more graphic version. Um, there's a nice write up here from the Washington Post, which really dwells on the aftermath of some of the violence. Um, but the summary was the uh, emperor's passed a royal decree that all students from elementary school to those attending university must buy uniforms or they wouldn't be admitted to classes. The material for the uniforms was controlled by the empress, his wife um, and grandniece, so Catherine Bokassa. So Bokassa, when the students came out in the street, um, they went out in the streets as UK kids in 1911, in 2003 for Iraq, as in so many places, um, who were met with hostility by authorities and, and the police. But nothing like this, because what happened here is they turned machine guns on children. So the children protested, and of course it wasn't just about uniforms, it was about the organisation of corruption, um, you know, the, the emperor's control over the aspects of their lives, all of those things, and, and they were treated with, with the, the ultimate violence. So not only protesting on behalf of the nation, but sacrificing their lives for the nation, taking risks and, and tragically having those risks not pay off at all. Okay, it's 20 past eight. As you can tell from my gluey voice, I'm too full of sugar to carry on this morning. I promise you I'll get all the way to 8.30 next week. Um, it's been lovely to have you. And if you think of any more exciting student rebellions or protests, please send them to me on Twitter. 
I love a good rebellion. Um, oh, just gonna have a read of Anika saying, I remember the demonstrations in 2010 against the tuition fee increase. Yes, of course. I was at a school to formally observe a trainee who had no idea and the students walked out at 11 a.m. halfway through his lesson. Oh, Lord. The school I was at stayed within school grounds with support from teachers too and didn't go back to lessons for the rest of the day. But I believe we had about 50,000 in London protesting and things became violent too. Wow. Now, I remember um, I was on the uh, strikes against the introduction of student loans uh, in the late 80s and early 90s and where we marched across London saying, singing, we won't pay our loans back. We won't pay our loans back. We did nothing to stop the introduction of tuition fees. And um, and we did pay our loans back because we had no choice. They were taken out of our salaries. But but yeah, that, that particular moment you've got there, Anika, of um, the teacher with the whole class rising and, and walking out and having no idea what was happening. I think that's a really emblematic moment. And we saw that in the 2003 oral history of that one student, 15-year-old, remembering doing the same thing with a poor supply teacher. Um, that sense that the students have arisen and there's nothing can, you can do to stop them is incredibly powerful. All right, have fun talking about revolution and rebellion with your students today or not. Um, and I will see you all next week. Thank you very much for tuning in today. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.